0: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
0: In Britain, a television series has at last got the public interested in a miscarriage of justice that carried on for two decades – What happened in the country's postal service is a lesson, in part, in trusting new technology too much.
2: And, as someone who much prefers to work from a sunny beach, it pains me to share that hot weather is making many jobs harder. And that's bad news for a warming world.
0: But first... Taiwan has elected a new president, and the result is not going to please leaders in mainland China. William Lai Qingde of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, the current ruling party, will take office in May. In his victory speech, Mr Lai said Taiwan was telling the whole world that between democracy and authoritarianism, they had chosen to stand on the side of democracy. Yet the finer details of the elections show why Mr. Lai may struggle to govern and how the Taiwanese public has more on its mind than saber-rattling from the neighbors. For now, the question is how those neighbors are likely to react.
3: This election was pivotal because it determines how Taiwan will deal with Chinese threats over the next four years.
0: Alice Su is a senior China correspondent for The Economist and a co-host of Drum Tower, our weekly podcast on China.
3: Chinese officials tried to intimidate Taiwan's voters by calling this election a choice between war and peace. They especially didn't want voters to pick the ruling party, which China sees as separatists.
0: Okay, Alice, first of all, just talk us through the actual results of the elections.
3: The winner of the election was William Lai ching He's the current vice president, and he was the candidate for the ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party, or the DPP. And this is a really big deal because it brings in an unprecedented third term. The DPP is known as a pro-independence party. It grew out of an activist movement for democracy and for Taiwan independence. But nowadays, they're actually quite moderate. They advocate for the status quo of de facto independence. But at the same time, they're really suspicious of China and they they talk about Taiwanese sovereignty quite a lot. So Lai Tingde got 40% of the vote. Second place was the Chinese Nationalist Party or the Kuomintang. They are the old establishment party that came from mainland China and ruled Taiwan as a one-party military dictatorship for about four decades and the Kuomintang as many listeners will know they were the communist party's enemies in the Chinese civil war but ironically these days they're much friendlier with China because they also reject Taiwan independence and then a major difference in this election was that for the first time there was a really viable third party it's called the Taiwan People's Party and it was led by Ko Wenje who was the former mayor of Taipei and he actually got 26% of the vote many of his supporters are young people and his campaign didn't focus on China at all. Instead, he was talking about domestic issues like housing and wages. And many young voters who are very fed up with Taiwan's traditional politics said they voted for Koenja because they didn't want to hear about China anymore. They wanted to hear about problems that affect their everyday lives.
0: Now, I know you spent a lot of time in Drum Tower talking about Mr. Lai, but give us a sense here of what sort of leader you expect him to be.
3: Lai Tingde is a veteran politician in Taiwan. He is the son of a coal miner. He grew up poor and then he became a doctor. He entered politics in 1996, which was also the year of Taiwan's first direct presidential election. So he's really kind of come up through the system through Taiwan's democratization process. He is current president Tsai Ing-wen's vice president, but they're actually... Very different, so wen is seen as more of an outsider to the DPP. she's very technocratic, she was a trade lawyer and she really changed the party's image from its more radical activist background to a more careful moderate international minded party that cares about rules- based order. And Lai the he's more of a grassroots guy, and he's known for having been more outspoken than Tsai Ing-wen in the past. Most famously, he once called himself a pragmatic worker for Taiwan independence. And of course, that's very alarming to China and to America and to a lot of people in Taiwan as well. But this time in his campaign, he has been emphasizing moderation. He says he's going to be Tsai Ing-wen 2.0. He will be very careful about his words.
0: But nevertheless, a moderate version of himself or no, I presume Beijing is not so happy with this result.
3: No, China is not happy. In fact, throughout the entire run-up to elections, Chinese officials were issuing statements calling Leitinga a separatist and saying that you know if he's elected, he will no doubt bring the Taiwan Strait into a dangerous situation. Xi Jinping, in particular, is a Chinese leader who wants to see progress on unification. He said that the Taiwan question should not be passed down from generation to generation, and he recently said that unification is a historical inevitability. Now. China did not have a very strong response right away to the election results. We saw a statement from the Taiwan Affairs Office where Chen Binhua, a spokesman, said that the DPP victory does not represent mainstream public opinion. And I thought that was very interesting because to me... It's a possible hint that China is going to keep trying to divide Taiwan and perhaps use opposition parties to hold back Taiwan from its investment in deterrence, from its strengthening relations with America and from its confidence in its own democratic system.
0: So I guess there is this question then of unity. You said that a viable third party had emerged in this election. The mainland clearly wants to use these other parties as a lever to to sort of break up the action of the DPP. Do you think that that unity question is an important one now?
3: Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. Even covering the elections this time on the ground, I could feel a very clear difference between the types of things that foreign journalists like myself were focused on. You know, we ask a lot of questions about China, about cross race policy, about the superpower rivalry between America and China. But on the ground at the rallies, you talk to the voters and a lot of them are not really thinking about these issues. Like one thing I heard a lot from young voters in particular was you know, this party that's ruling us now, they talk all the time about democracy and standing up to China, but what has democracy really delivered for us? Like, is this really democracy? Why are we still having so many economic problems? Why do I feel like my voice isn't heard? And so there is this real frustration there. And one part of it, I think, is a legitimate complaint that the China question has distorted Taiwanese politics and overshadows substantial, solid policy debate and progress. Another part of it could also be amplification of these narratives coming from China, because we have seen a lot of Chinese disinformation, sowing skepticism of America, sowing skepticism of democracy, these kinds of narratives that are really prevalent in mainland Chinese media. They're also all over Taiwanese media and Taiwanese social media. And so in a way, you know, what we've seen in this election is that China has sent messages about, you know, don't vote for the DPP, but it's actually been quite muted compared to past elections in terms of, you know, there was no big show of force to try and scare Taiwanese voters. But there is a lot of division, skepticism, disinformation, disunity within Taiwan. And I think part of that is an external force trying to weaken the society. But another part of it is real problems within the society itself.
0: But as you say, Beijing pitched this as a choice between war and peace. The Kuomintang pitched it as a choice between war and peace. Is that framing fair or no?
3: Well, in one way, I think the framing is quite misleading because, to be clear, Taiwan's dangerous situation is mostly due to aggression coming from Beijing. Beijing is the one that has really raised tensions in the Taiwan Strait, that is sending warplanes into the strait nearly every day now, often crossing a de facto boundary between the two sides. Beijing is the one that sent missiles flying over Taiwan after... America's former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, came to visit the island in 2022. At the same time, I do think that if Taiwanese voters had chosen the opposition, the KMT, which was willing to reject Taiwanese independence and promote trade and integration with China, then I do think tensions in the Taiwan Strait would have dropped, at least temporarily. However, so far, China's response has been relatively muted. They have been issuing statements condemning the U.S. and other countries that congratulated Taiwan on its elections. They've been saying, you know, you you can't do that. That's violating our one China principle. But they haven't been making dramatic military moves so far.
0: And aside from the recent episode of Drum Tower that looked ahead to this election, I know that uh, last year you ran an in-depth four-part series about it. What's in that?
3: Yeah, we made a four-part series on Taiwan and Drum Tower, and we looked into Taiwan's history and identity. We met all kinds of Taiwanese people, a guy who went to fight in Ukraine, a semiconductor engineer who worked in Shanghai. And we also asked about Taiwan's future. We look at how Xi Jinping is trying to unify Taiwan without a war, but also what it would look like if it did come to an invasion. If you want to listen to that, just scroll through the Drum Tower feed.
0: Alice, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thanks, Jason.
1: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. The computer system the Post Office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty.
0: No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. IT problems in Britain's Postal Service might not sound like material for a gripping television drama. But the new show Mr. Bates vs. the Post Office has cast light on one of the country's worst miscarriages of justice in living memory. It follows the story of the eponymous Mr. Bates and hundreds of other postal workers whose lives were ruined when they were falsely accused of stealing money. After years of inaction by politicians, the series might finally have sparked enough outrage for justice to be served.
4: This scandal has been reported on for years and reported in some detail by various media outlets, but it's taken a TV drama for politicians to really sit up and listen.
0: Me and Ridge is a Britain correspondent for The Economist.
4: They're responding to an eruption of public anger over a scandal in which hundreds of postmasters were falsely convicted and accused. There have been calls for resignations, and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced plans to pass an unprecedented law quashing the convictions.
3: This is one of the greatest miscarriages
1: of justice in our nation's history. People who worked hard to serve their communities had their lives and their reputations destroyed through absolutely no fault of their own. The victims must get justice and compensation.
0: Okay, so just get us up to date then with the scandal behind the show.
4: The scandal revolves around this new software that the post office got some postmasters to start using from 1999. It was called Horizon. It was a new accounting system that was operated by Fujitsu. It generated errors which showed up as losses in postmaster's accounts. They were unable to correct those errors themselves. And when they called the helpline, they were told that there was nothing that could be done and that they were the only people having the problem. The post office didn't acknowledge the problem. Many sub postmasters were subsequently accused of stealing money. In one case in particular, Lee Castleton, a sub postmaster in Yorkshire, his accounting showed up a loss of £26,000. The post office demanded that he make up the shortfall himself. He refused. He took the case to court. He represented himself because he didn't have money for a lawyer. And a judge ordered him to pay costs of 321000 which bankrupted him.
0: And clearly he wasn't the only one. I mean, how big was this problem?
4: It was pretty big, it was widespread. So, his was one of several hundred cases between 1999 and 2015 in which sub postmasters were wrongly accused. More than 700 were convicted of crimes, including fraud and theft. Some were jailed. Hundreds more were chased for money in civil litigation. They were sued. Many were made bankrupt. Lots had their health and relationships destroyed. Four people killed themselves. The Criminal Cases Review Commission, which looks into possible miscarriages of justice, has described the scandal as the most widespread miscarriage of justice it's ever seen in the biggest single series of wrongful convictions in British legal history.
0: And you say that the scandal is not just now coming to light, that the TV show is dramatising it. How did it first sort of make the news?
4: This scandal, in all its dreadful detail, and there are lots of dreadful details, has been known about for two decades thanks largely to the real-life Mr Bates, who was a postmaster from Wales. In 2004, he first reported his concerns to Computer Weekly, a magazine. Private Eye, a satirical news magazine, which isn't scared to tell the truth, even when it's not joking, and the BBC, they've both covered this story admirably. And in doing so, have shown the power of journalism. But the TV show has been the real catalyst for making the scandal more widely known and the real mr bates himself has said that he's very surprised by how the story's taken off.
1: Last couple of weeks have been absolutely bananas, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. I mean, it's been one thing after another, I haven't been able to put the phone down, I mean, it, I mean, it's great in some ways. I mean, huge amount of support for for the for the victims in all of this.
4: So the drama's portrayal of ordinary hard-working people, many of whom were important people in their communities, very powerful has caused unsurprisingly, public outrage. And that, in turn, has triggered a panicked response from politicians and others.
0: So what form has that response taken?
4: Paula Venels, who'd been chief executive of the post office for a lot of the period during which the sub-postmasters were being hounded, has said she'll return her CBE, an honour that was awarded to her as recently as 2019, so long after the scandal was known about. In 2020, the Metropolitan Police launched an investigation. No one's yet been arrested in connection with that. And the same year, the government established a public inquiry led by Wynne Williams, a former High Court justice. And in December, the House of Commons passed a new law designed to speed up compensation payments. So it's surprising the degree, really, to which a lot has been happening before this drama came out.
0: So there are some moves here, and public outrage is having some effect. But what about the postmasters who have been wrongly accused for all this time? What of their cases?
4: Yeah, so only 93 postmasters have had their convictions overturned, which is quite shocking. I think that help explains what's now happened. So the government, on January the 10th, said it would pass a new law in the next few weeks, whatever that means, to exonerate all those who've been unfairly convicted. That's a very understandable step, but it's also quite a worrying one, because no one actually knows how many postmasters did something wrong. We do know that some have had their appeals rejected in the courts. And there's a concern that this violates a very important constitutional principle, the independence of the judiciary. It would obviously be better if the courts could just do their job without government interference, even in challenging circumstances. And this has led some to worry that because of cuts made during austerity, which has led to big backlogs and other problems in the courts, the courts wouldn't actually have been able to process so many individual appeals made separately. That in itself is worrying. There's also the problem that lots of postmasters have not come forward to appeal their convictions, and we don't know the reasons for that. But the government clearly felt it had to do something.
0: Well, the government only feels it has to do something in effect because of a television show. I mean, what does it tell you that that's what actually made this an issue, not years' worth of reporting by media outlets?
4: Well, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened. TV drama can sometimes have a galvanising effect on government or the public. In 1966, for example, Cathy Come Home, which was a Ken Loach film about a homeless couple, prompted a parliamentary debate in Parliament. (laughs) And it's credited with changing attitudes to that problem. But I think the effect of Mr Bates, the drama, is probably unprecedented in its scale because of the sheer scale of the scandal itself. Miscarriages of justice can be very painful to think about, especially if there's a sense that nothing's going to be done. And this one involved things like misfiring accounting software, which is not the most exciting thing in the world. Those things have made it hard for people to grasp until now. By humanising the plight of postmasters like Mr. Castleton and Mr. Bates, the drama's brought home the suffering of ordinary individuals in a way that media reports simply haven't been able to do.
0: Mian, thanks very much for your time.
4: Thank you, Jason.
2: Climate change has been linked to all sorts of extreme weather. Floods, hurricanes, fires and heat waves. These heat waves are far more of a threat than you might think. Exposure to hot weather for a long time can make people who already have medical conditions, like lung disease, even sicker. It raises the risk of dehydration and in the most extreme cases, when combined with humidity, Hot weather could make it impossible for a person to cool down. In effect, a person's organs could cook. In America alone, heat waves are thought to kill more people each year than any other type of natural disaster. Now, researchers are also starting to quantify in economic terms how much this hotter world will cost us. And it's staggering.
1: The hotter the world gets, the more heat is affecting daily life, and that includes when it comes to work and labour. Rachel Dobbs writes about climate for
2: The Economist.
1: Researchers are now starting to grapple with the exact economic costs of having days where it's too hot to work and how that affects countries and economies.
2: And what numbers have they come up with?
1: The Lancet, which is a medical journal, recently published their annual report looking at how climate change and environmental problems affect health. And one of the things that they tracked this year was the extent to which high temperatures meant lost hours of labour. So by taking into account various different types of jobs in different countries and related levels of heat and sunlight and humidity, they estimated that high temperatures led to about 490 billion potential lost hours of labour across 2022. Those hours of work, they think, translated into a loss of about $863 billion in gross domestic product or GDP worldwide. That leaves global GDP $863 billion smaller than it would have been without excess heat. For scale, that is more than triple the amount lost from extreme weather events like hurricanes and floods. Also, it's worth noting that the estimated number of dollar amount and hours lost – can't properly take into account labour in the informal economy. So the true economic cost of this kind of heat is likely to be even
2: higher. Now, Rachel, I presume some jobs are more affected by the hot weather than others. Which are the most hard hit?
1: As you would expect, the jobs where people are working long hours outdoors and in places that are hot already. So overwhelmingly, agriculture was the most affected sector in the report. And then within that... The countries that then get most hard hit are the ones that are hotter to begin with, so typically close to the equator, which tend to be poor or developing countries, and also countries which rely on agriculture as a major driver of their economy. So the researchers found that potential earnings lost because of heat exposure accounted for nearly 5% of overall GDP for countries in Southeast Asia and more than 4% of GDP for those in Africa.
2: Are people at least recognising that this is a problem and preparing accordingly? Yes
1: and no. In the international climate conversation, health and particularly the impacts of heat are gaining much greater prominence than they previously had. At COP, which is the UN Climate Summit, this year there was a whole day dedicated to health impacts. I also think that there has been much more of a focus on direct economic harms that are being done to particularly poor countries because of or of the warming in the emissions that rich countries have put out. So Tedros Adhanom Gidriasis, the Director General of the World Health Organization, spoke about the effects of climate change on public health at COP, and that included the way in which heat is a factor.
2: The threats to health resulting from climate change are immediate and present. However, for too long, health has been a footnote climate discussion.
1: It's also really important to note here that these are the impacts that we are feeling currently when the world is about 1.2 degrees Celsius hotter than it was above pre-industrial levels. That is going to get worse. And therefore, you know, the impacts that are felt are going to increase drastically as well. And so the Lancet estimates that heat-related labour loss will increase by another 50% if temperatures by the end of this century rise to just under 2 degrees Celsius.
2: Rachel, are there other ways that climate change is going to impact health?
1: Yeah, heat is by no means the only way in which climate change is going to impact health and the various other problems coming down the pipeline was also quite a big part of the conversation of the health day at COP. Mosquitoes and other vectors that spread diseases tend to be quite climate sensitive. As temperatures get higher in certain areas, they will move into those areas. So Tedros adenomgidriasis spoke about this at COP as well.
2: And our warming planet is expanding the range of mosquitoes which carry dangerous pathogens like dengue, chikungunya, Zika and yellow fever into places that have never dealt with them before.
1: You're also seeing diseases themselves by other mechanisms spread to new places like warmer seas can spread the areas of coastline in which you can be exposed to certain very dangerous bacteria. After disasters, you often have overcrowding and poor sanitation. And with more disease and more illness, more people will get sick. And that, again, will keep them
2: out of the workplace. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ori.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. I hope you caught the weekend edition of the show where my colleague smashed a Guinness World Record and in the process learned how record-breaking is more of a business model than mere pursuit of greatness. Subscribers, have a listen. Non-subscribers, be envious. And then search Economist Podcasts to rid yourself of that pernicious envy. See you back here tomorrow.